Historical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is the tale of a Scottish queen who found herself on the wrong side of the wrath of the Tudor dynasty. Dearest listeners, happy summer. I'm here with a surprise episode on a random day of the week because I'm just so woefully behind at this point that I'm not even mad. It's just funny. Let me make my sporadic absences up to you, though. July and August, I've decided, are going to be a Tudor header. And if you're like, what? More Tudors? Gary Day episodes on Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII? Yes, you are correct. And also, those episodes have the most downloads. So the math here tells me that you want more. So here I am to deliver with this month's subject, Mary, Queen of Scots. Before the 2018 movie came out, I vaguely remembered reading a small paragraph about her when I was in high school, but that was pretty much the extent of my knowledge. She's just one of those names that is so famous, you know it, but don't necessarily know the full story. Well, buckle up, friends, because this one is a dark descent into violence and tragedy. You'll love it. All right, you know the drill. Imagine yourself on a cold December night in a drafty stone Scottish castle as the heralds proclaim the death of the king and the rise of a new infant queen. Chapter one, it came with a lass, it will pass with a lass. Yeah, that wasn't me being dramatic. That's really what happened. But let's back up for a second and talk about Mary's heritage because this is kind of the key to her whole story. Mary's grandmother was Margaret Tudor, daughter of Henry VII and older sister to Henry VIII. She was shipped off to Scotland when she was roughly 14 or 15 to marry King James IV. Her son became James V when he was 17 months old. It turns out Scottish kings for like more than an entire century all became king and in Mary's case, queen when they were babies or at least children. All the Jameses had regencies starting with James I in 1406 at age 12, James II was seven, James III 11, James IV 15, and then James V at 17 months. James V was Mary's father. He led a pretty interesting, albeit short life, as he died at 30. So if you have some time to go down a rabbit hole, look him up. But for our purposes, here's what you need to know about James. When he was in his regency, he was treated almost like a prisoner by the Earl of Angus. And one of the ways the Earl kept him distracted from trying to rule his kingdom was by setting up trysts with noble ladies. So James V had nine illegitimate children by the time he died. Store that in your pocket because this is pretty important to later events. James was first married to Madeleine of Valois, daughter of Henry VIII's rival, Francis I, but she was sickly and died soon after arriving in Scotland. So instead, he married Marie de Guise, who was the daughter of a duke and the widow of another duke. England was a mortal enemy of Scotland, so kind of like the case with America, France was the stronger ally who liked to needle England by helping the tiny country, so this alliance was important. Marie de Guise already had two sons from her first marriage, but had to leave them behind in France. She and James had two sons that each died as infants before the birth of our Queen Mary. In the months preceding her birth, Margaret Tudor died, and once his sister was dead, Henry VIII was like, well, no need to keep the peace now, and it was all-out war. James V led his troops into battle and had a big win in August 1542 that kind of made him a bit cocky and he tried to convince the Scottish nobility to invade England. They hemmed and hawed a bit and while this was going on, James took ill but recovered relatively quickly. 
But then James V suffered a serious defeat at the Battle of Solway Moss. The shock of the defeat was so great that it's speculated he suffered a nervous breakdown. There's some debate on this though, since he had been ill about a month before this happened. Whatever the case, the king was seriously sick. And here is where Mary entered the chat. Her birth was just as cinematic as the rest of her life would unfold to be. Mary was born on a stormy night on the 8th of December in 1542 at Linlithgow Palace. Word was immediately sent to the king, who was on his deathbed at Falkland Palace. John Knox, a horrible troll that we'll talk more about in a bit, said that the king proclaimed, it came with a lass, it'll pass with a lass. If that's not some Shakespeare shit, I don't know what is. What James was referring to, if he actually said it, there's no way to know for sure because the source is dubious, was that the Stuarts' dynasty began with Robert the Bruce's daughter Marjorie some 200 years prior. But would his prophecy that the dynasty would end with Mary come to pass? Chapter two, Queen of France. Okay, so the king is dead and baby Mary is now the queen, the fifth such child monarch that century. Her mother, Marie de Guise, had a pretty powerful family back in France. And as such, she was kind of awesome at statecraft. The Earl of Iran was Mary's regent. Now, our old friend Henry VIII had spidey senses for power vacuums, so he was like, okay, cool, let's have Mary betrothed to my son Edward so we can eventually unite the kingdoms, but if we do this, she has to come live in England starting at age 10. The Earl was like, yeah, sure, sounds good. But then Henry got back up to his old tricks and arrested some Scottish merchants and took all their goods away. This was right before Mary's baby coronation in 1543. All of Scotland was livid with this, and the Earl was so angry that he converted to Catholicism and basically ripped up the Treaty of Greenwich, which was the treaty that there would be peace if Mary would marry Edward. Henry was like, haha, okay, well, I'll just come burn down your land and kidnap your queen, and thus started what was known as the Rough Wooing, where England kept invading Scotland trying to force their hand to get Mary back for Edward. Mary and her mother were sent to a series of castles and nunneries that got increasingly more remote as they tried to keep her safe and out of Henry's hands. Now, Marie de Guise did not trust the Earl of Iran any further than she could throw him because of his initial pro-English policy. After he suffered a series of defeats against the English, she managed to get him removed from the regency and became regent herself in 1544. That's when King Henri II of France and just a note here, his name is spelled H-E-N-R-I, but I'm going to do a terrible French pronunciation and say Henri, just so that we don't confuse him with Henry VIII. Anyway, Henri was like, hey, now Scotland, our old ally, we could unite because Mary could marry my son Francis, to which the Earl of Iran was mad, but said fine, and Marie de Guise probably did a dance because France was her home country, and this meant huge things for her entire family if her daughter should become Queen of France, which at the time was still kind of the center for power and opulence in Europe. Mary was then sent to France for her safety and where she could be brought up in the French court, and I should mention here that Mary was about five years old at this point and was blissfully unaware of the Game of Thrones being played out around her. Save that for later. And I'm going to throw in this delightful little factoid for your enjoyment. Apparently, the Stuart dynasty used to be spelled with a W, so S-T-E-W-A-R-T, but the French couldn't pronounce the W, so Mary changed it to the Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T, that we're familiar with today. I love France, and I love that they couldn't pronounce the W. All right, so Henri sent over a fleet to escort Mary, and she arrived in France in 1548. With her was sent a governess and four friends slash ladies-in-waiting, all named Mary, 
And they were known as the Four Marys because I swear to God, there was no diversity in names. Marie de Guise stayed behind in England because she was still the regent and wanted to protect Mary's interests back in her home kingdom. And like, that must have been brutal because now Marie is separated from her daughter in addition to the family she left behind in France and has to deal with all these fighting Scottish lords who hate her for being Catholic. Anyway, Henri has Mary brought up in the same household as her future husband, Francis, and they were super best friends. Francis was a year younger than her and kind of sickly and shy. Mary was the exact opposite. She was witty and charming and beautiful. Everyone in France loved her, except, of course, Francis's mother and Henri's wife, Catherine de Medici, which I only recently found out is pronounced Medici. Catherine kind of had a not super pleasant go of things. Henri's mistress and head of the Royal Children's Education was Diane de Poitiers, a much older, stunning woman who had also been a favorite of Henri's father. So Catherine was kind of contending with the fact that she had to share power with the mistress and the Medicis were powerful, but not royalty. So the very into appearances French court looked down on her. And now you've got this gorgeous Scottish queen come to take even more power and attention away. I get it. I'd be bitter too. Anyway, for the next 13 years, Mary lived an idyllic life at the French court, sheltered from everything, given unimaginable wealth and comfort. Super best friends with her future husband, the Dauphin. Just a great childhood. Unfortunately, though, here's kind of where Mary's happiness ends. In 1558, Queen Mary I, a.k.a. Bloody Mary, Henry VIII's daughter with Catherine of Aragon, died, and Elizabeth I became queen. Now, I'm not going to go into Elizabeth's childhood too much right now, because she'll be the focus of our next edition of Storical, but suffice it to say, her childhood was not at all happy, like Mary's. When she became queen, because her mother, Anne Boleyn, had been beheaded as a traitor, many didn't think Elizabeth was a legitimate queen, especially English Catholics, who would have loved to see a return to Catholicism, albeit a little less bloody than the one of Mary I. Henri was like, okay, so my daughter-in-law has a pretty strong claim to the English throne. Henry VIII had disinherited his older sister, Margaret's line of Stuarts from his last will, but because there was so much grumbling about Elizabeth across Europe, Henri was like, let me poke this bear. So once Mary and Francis were married, Henri proclaimed them king and queen of England. He even added the English royal arms to Mary and Francis's French coat of arms. We don't know if this was just Henri doing this with Mary as a bystander or if she had an active hand in this, but Elizabeth I was none too pleased. Henri then died in a horrific jousting injury one year later, and Mary and Francis were king and queen of France. The good times kept up for them, but Marie de Guise was having some trouble back in Scotland. She had always relied on French troops to maintain control, but France was dealing with its own uprising, and when they could no longer send her troops, things started breaking down, and then Marie de Guise died. Mary's French uncles, who had risen because of her position as Queen of France, negotiated the Treaty of Edinburgh, where both France and England would withdraw troops from Scotland, and France would recognize England as the rightful ruler, but then Mary, bless her heart, would not ratify it. So that's more fuel for Elizabeth to be like WTF cousin. Mary was still queen of France and thought the gravy train would never end. So pissing off Elizabeth wasn't too high on her priority list until, of course, her sweet, albeit sickly husband Francis died of an inner ear infection that went to his brain. And just Google it if you want to know more because it is so gross and horrible. So Catherine de' Medici wasted no time being like, hey, give me back the French crown and jewels and don't let the door hit you. Mary had grown up in France. Her whole life was here. Scotland, though she was queen, was a foreign country. She didn't know if she should retire to the French countryside or go home. 
Ultimately, her belief in her divine right to rule won out, and she returned to a much-changed Protestant Scotland. Chapter 3, Queen of Scots. Nine months after Francis's death, Mary was back in Scotland. And first things first, every media portrayal has her with a Scottish accent. No, no, no. She sounded like a French lady because she spent her entire childhood speaking French. Second, Mary was extremely tall for her time period. Even by today's standards, she was a very tall lady standing about five foot 11. She had the Tudor red gold hair and brown eyes. She was extremely clever and charming as well as graceful and athletic. In short, she was everything that was seen as the ideal in a Renaissance princess or queen. So even though she was something of a stranger to her country when she returned, the Scottish people liked the idea of having such a beautiful, sophisticated queen. She brought French musicians and entertainments to court. Up to this point, Scotland had been kind of wild and rough and tumble, and they saw her as bringing credibility to the Scottish claim of being able to hang with the best of European powers. Now, not everyone was excited that she was back. The country had once been Catholic, but it was now solidly Protestant. There was distrust for her because Mary was right or die Catholic. Like her cousin Elizabeth, Mary decided a policy of religious tolerance was for the best, and she made the Earl of Moray, her older half-brother, who was illegitimate and not at all happy that he wasn't the ruler of Scotland in his own right, he became her chief advisor and had considerable influence with the queen. He was Protestant, and when she told him that she was not interested in changing hearts and minds, she was allowed to take mass in private. Things were fine. Except there was a preacher named John Knox, the guy I mentioned at the beginning, who had the, it came with the last, it will pass with the last line. John Knox was a hardcore misogynist and spent his time denigrating the queen for being Catholic, sure, but mostly for being a lady, because what feeble little lady could be smart enough to rule? Viral. Anyway, throughout her reign, Knox liked to rile up Protestant support against her, but to her credit, she did try to play nice with him and with the other Protestant lords. She routinely allowed Protestants to serve on her council and also appointed men that she really hated, but had relevant experience. But back in Scotland, even closer to England, her affairs really started to turn back to the English throne. She decided to try a new tactic with her cousin Elizabeth. Instead of, you know, just claiming Elizabeth's throne, she decided to try to get Elizabeth to name Mary as heir, which there is some logic to. Elizabeth didn't have an heir, and Mary was the closest Tudor relation at this point. This was a hard pass for Elizabeth, for reasons which we will go into in the next episode. Mary had only been about 18 years old when she was widowed. She was young and pretty and ready to settle down with a new husband. Elizabeth made it clear that she would not approve Mary as an heir unless she were to marry an Englishman, preferably of Elizabeth's choosing. In fact, Elizabeth offered Mary Robert Dudley, whom you may remember was Elizabeth's favorite and purported lover. Mary was super offended by this because it was obvious that Elizabeth just wanted Dudley to be her spy. Enter into the picture, Lord Darnley, who is himself of the Stuart house and Mary's half first cousin, but an English subject. So the 411 on Darnley is that he was what we would call a pretty boy very handsome, about six feet tall, slightly effeminate guy with a taste for fine clothing and luxury. He had all the ladies falling over themselves for him. He had been born in England, and the reason why his parents were in England is because they had sided with King Henry VIII back when he was rough wooing Scotland and were found guilty of treason in Scotland, so they booked it for England. So real catch there. He showed up in Scotland because his mom was a bit of a schemer and had designs on getting him in front of Mary. And she was right because as soon as Mary saw him, she was head over heels. Like, can you imagine being as tall as Mary? Darnley was probably the first guy that was taller than her. As a fellow tall person, though I'm only 5'9", I feel her there. Anyway, 
He's loading her up with charm and she ate it up. Mary was like, okay, this guy is hot. He's connected to the Royal house and he's English. Elizabeth will love this. Ahem. Elizabeth did not love this. First, a little rabbit hole. We'll talk more about this in a second, but as you may have guessed, Darnley was the worst. Like, bad attitude, spoiled, arrogant, just a horror show of a human being. This was well known in England, even by Elizabeth herself. Mary, of course, did not know this. There's speculation that Elizabeth sent Darnley as a trap for Mary because he was so terrible that she knew if Mary married him that she would be undone. We don't know for sure if that's true, but the reason Elizabeth didn't support the marriage was because the mathematics of royal claims is that if you take two obscure claims to the English throne, when you add them together, the claim is much stronger. And Elizabeth wanted no one to take her throne. Mary was like, whatever, Elizabeth, I'm a queen. I'll do what I want. And she went ahead and married Darnley in secret. Elizabeth was like, fine, you're not my heir because I didn't approve of him. And Mary was just lovesick at this point, so didn't care. Darnley was the beginning of the end, though. Almost immediately, his violent, brutish side came out, and Mary knew that she had made a grave mistake. Not to mention, Darnley was a Catholic, so all the Protestant lords, including the Earl of Moray, her brother and advisor, got real mad and rebelled. To her credit, Mary rode out on a white horse in full view of her people and rallied them to her side. This was called the chase-about raid because she and her army literally chased the Earl and the other lords around the country until they went crying to Elizabeth to help them out in England. So now Mary has no more family and has this horrible husband. She's kind of on her own at this point. And then, of course, it turns out that she is pregnant. Darnley was drunk all the time, never helped out with the business of statecraft, and constantly nagged Mary because she had promised him the crown matrimonial, which is basically that he would have been king in his own right, not just a king consort. She was like, uh, sure, maybe later, but no way in hell was she going to make this jerk king. Mary had a favorite in her court, her private secretary and an Italian musician named David Rizzio. They were always together and basically super BFFs. The Protestant lords knew what kind of person Darnley was, so they went up to him and were like, hey, David Rizzio is actually the father of Mary's child. You should help us kill him. And Darnley was like, yes, I will join this conspiracy. While Mary was eating dinner with Rizzio and her ladies in her private chamber when she was about six or seven months pregnant, Darnley and the other lords snuck in and stabbed Rizzio 57 times in front of her and kicked him down the stairs of the castle. One of the lords held a gun to Mary's pregnant belly when she cried out. Darnley, for his part, chickened out and didn't participate, but because they needed Darnley's culpability, one of them took his dagger and stabbed Rizzio symbolically. So yeah, that happened just a few months before her son James was born. While Mary and Darnley were held, Mary was able to persuade Darnley that the lords were going to turn on him too. So Darnley turned back to her side, and the two escaped back to her brother, the Earl of Moray, who was also ready to come back over to her side and was fully restored to her council. The drama doesn't end there, folks. Mary hated Darnley at this point, but she also needed him around so that her son wouldn't be a bastard when he was born. Darnley needed to accept his son so that he could become the heir without gossip. James VI of Scotland was born on June 19, 1566, and Mary was doubly excited because this meant that her useful idiot Darnley was now no longer needed. Over the next few months, both Mary and Darnley each had brushes with serious illness. Darnley was recovering from an illness, probably syphilis, on the outskirts of Edinburgh on February 9, 1567. Mary excused herself and said that she just remembered she had a wedding that she had to attend. 
the house literally blew up and Darnley was found dead outside the house, but not from the fire. It was because he was strangled as he made his escape. There is debate to this day about the events of that night. Thanks to a trove of letters called the casket letters, which have mostly been debunked at this point, opponents of Mary believed that she was having an affair with the Earl of Boswell, a man who was in and out of her council up until this point, and the two then plotted Darnley's murder, with Bothwell being the one to ultimately kill him. No one was really upset that Darnley was murdered, though. Everyone hated the guy. Elizabeth put on a show of being upset that one of her subjects was killed, so they had to go through the motions of a trial and whatnot for Bothwell, but he was acquitted. What really didn't help Mary was that she married Bothwell. And this is super sticky because there are a number of ways to read the situation. Boswell kidnapped and raped Mary with the intention being that she would have to marry him because of the rape. It is debated if this is true or not, or if that was a cover story that Mary used and that she really was having an affair with him. And this was the plan they hatched to be together. It's hard to say, but the Scottish people and these crazy lords were even more upset about the marriage to Bothwell because of the various factions fighting each other and the fact that he was still under suspicion for murder. The lords turned on her again and Mary and Bothwell tried to raise an army to defend her crown. But this time she was taken prisoner at Loch Leven Castle where she suffered a miscarriage of twins. Bothwell was exiled. Mary was then forced to abdicate her crown to her son, one-year-old baby James VI, another baby King James. The Earl of Moray became the regent to James. Chapter 4, Captive Queen. Mary was imprisoned by her own lords for a year before she made an escape. And this is a cinematic level escape. It was May Day, and the son of the owner of the castle drugged everyone's wine. He dressed as the Abbot of Unreason, threw a handkerchief on the keys to the castle gates and made off with them while Mary was disguised and walked right out. They had boats docked and waiting for them and then Mary was able to amass 6,000 troops to fight for her. Earl of Moray, now the regent of her son, King James VI, was having none of this and handily defeated Mary. She fled and had a huge decision to make, flee to France or appeal to her cousin Elizabeth for sanctuary. Mary had forged quite the pen palship with Elizabeth and really believed that Elizabeth would be horrified that an anointed queen would be treated the way Mary was, so she ultimately sailed to England and straight to captivity. And it was true, Elizabeth was horrified by the events that had transpired, but she also didn't want to have to deal with her problematic Catholic cousin anymore, so she had Mary taken under house arrest for the next 18 years, moving her between stately houses such as Sheffield Castle and Chatsworth House, which, for all you Pride and Prejudice fans, Chatsworth is believed to be the inspiration for Mr. Darcy's estate, Pemberley. So go Google that and take a look, or, shameless plug, Check out my Pemberley perfume at immortalperfumes.com. All right, so house arrest. You're thinking, why didn't Elizabeth just have her killed? We'll talk more about this in the Elizabeth episode, but she was very indecisive and she really did not want to have to kill a fellow queen. Her advisors slash spymasters, William Cecil and Sir Walsingham, really wanted her to get rid of Mary, but for years they couldn't convince her to follow through. Mary attempted to get James to share power with her and got back to her old tricks of trying to get named heir again, but James never met his mother after his first year of life and was kind of like, I'm king and Elizabeth likes me because I'm a Protestant, so I'll probably be heir without you. Why would I share power? And predictably, over those years, there were many plots by Catholics and opponents of Elizabeth who tried to dethrone the queen and prop up Mary. These were all uncovered and didn't have clear links to Mary, until the Babington plot in 1586. 
The Babington plot was largely a setup by Walsingham, but Mary sanctioned the assassination of Elizabeth in letters that she was having smuggled out, not knowing they were going straight to Walsingham. Not a spy master for nothing. At her trial, she was like, um, I'm not really a subject of Elizabeth, so this can't be treason. But Cecil was having none of this, and he got Elizabeth to sign the order of execution. She was like, oh, okay, it's signed, but don't kill her till I say so. And Cecil was kind of like, um, didn't hear that last part, and went ahead and had her executed. Because her whole life was messy, she went out in dramatic fashion as well. In some ways, her death was a relief. She had been depressed, her beauty faded from all the stress, and she wasn't allowed to exercise and ride, so she lost a lot of weight. At her execution, she dressed all in black, and when she got to the scaffold, tore off her outer garments and what should be underneath, but red velvet petticoats, which were the color of martyrs and a huge F.U. to Elizabeth and Protestantism. Unlike Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, Mary did not have a swift Frenchman with the sword. Mary got the axe, and her executioner was really bad at his job. If you're squeamish, fast forward because her death was super graphic. It took three blows to kill her. Guys, that's really bad. It's supposed to be fast and painless. This was not. The first blow, he hit her in the back of the head. The second, he hit her neck. It didn't go all the way through the sinnoh, so he was sawing through her neck for the final blow. He held up her head and shouted, God save the queen. I'm assuming he was talking about Elizabeth. But then in a chaotic scene, Mary's wig fell off. Her lips were still moving and her pet dog had been hiding under her skirts and ran out and lay down in a puddle of its dead mistress's blood. Just wow. Elizabeth was genuinely angry that the execution had been carried out. But in death, Mary ended up winning as her son, James VI, united England and Scotland as James I after Elizabeth made him her heir. The Stuarts ruled England until 1714 upon the death of Queen Anne. So James V's statement that it came with alas and it will pass with alas was true, just not of Mary. Chapter 5, Mary's Legacy. With such a dramatic life, Mary's story is proof that the truth is stranger than fiction. In fact, what got me interested in Mary was the 2018 film Mary Queen of Scots with Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie. The movie itself had a lot of historical inaccuracies, the most glaring being the idea that Elizabeth and Mary met. They did not. But I was watching it on a plane and actually paid for Wi-Fi because the scene with Rizzio's murder was so insane to me that I had to Google it right there at 38,000 feet. That movie is 100% sympathetic to Mary, and in terms of a historical biopic, it is squarely in the it's fine category for me. Didn't love it, didn't hate it. I do, however, love both actresses, but I didn't like the cliches that they used to square Mary and Elizabeth off against each other. Since the deaths of these Tudor queens, there has been a tendency to hype their rivalry. One, the scar-faced hag versus the beautiful, charming queen, virgin queen versus adulterous wife, and so forth. These are largely misogynistic interpretations, and the truth is that they were both powerful women and each was flawed in their own way. Apart from the 2018 film, most of the other films about her are really old, including one of the first films ever made called The Execution of Mary Queen of Scots, which was made in 1895. It's just 18 seconds long, and it was produced by Thomas Edison. If you want to get your golden age of Hollywood on, check out the 1936 film Mary of Scotland starring Catherine Hepburn. There's also the TV show Rain, but listeners, I'm sorry, I just, 
I could not. I tried to watch it for this, but even I have limits. It's inaccurate to the point of why didn't they just rename the characters? It's Mary Queen of Scots if the Tudors TV show were made for teenagers. It's on Netflix if you're curious. In terms of other podcasts to listen to, if you would like a nice helping of hilarity, check out the Queen's podcast episode on Mary. One delightful listen I found was a podcast by three Scottish expatriates who do a podcast about Scottish things. It is spelled T-H-I-S-T-L-E, do nicely, pronounced thistle do nicely instead of thistle, thistle, which I laughed so hard when I turned it on and I heard them say that. Their show is also very funny, but I especially liked this episode because you get the Scotsman take on Mary. I'll also link to some of the more usual suspects, such as the BBC and stuff you missed in history class. In terms of books, if you want the full Mary download, you need the 40-hour audiobook. I'm too afraid to look at how many actual pages that would be of Margaret George's Mary Queen of Scots. The narrator used a French accent for her, which I appreciated, and it takes you through her entire life. This is like reading a novelization of a biography, which I personally really enjoy. Just a trigger warning though, it is violent and there are several rapes that happen in the book. The Wild Queen is a YA telling of Mary's life in the same vein as Margaret George, but written with teens in mind. It's a fast one and well-written. For biographies, I turn to Antonia Fraser, who also wrote my favorite biography of Marie Antoinette. It's just called Mary Queen of Scots, and it's one of the first biographies that ever really gives a balanced view of Mary. Prior to this book, you either loved her or you vilified her. There was no in-between. Well, that's all I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed learning about Mary Queen of Scots. I will likely not get back to weekly episodes for a while still, but subscribe to Storical wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the next episode. Join me again next month for the tumultuous journey to the crown of one of England's greatest monarchs, Elizabeth I.